Welcome to the America's Quarterly Podcast. I'm Brian Winter. When Argentina defaulted on its debt back in 2001, its Congress famously erupted in rapturous applause. This time around, in 2020, things feel different with President Alberto Fernandez's government racing to reach a deal with creditors. For a variety of reasons, I don't think Argentines are cheering for default. I think right now Argentines don't seem to be eager for another long period where they're locked out of capital markets. Argentina's first debt default came in the year 1827, just a decade after independence. The most recent, its eighth, came in 2014. And man, if you think your life is like the movie Groundhog Day amid this pandemic where you're living the same day over and over again, here we are again in May 2020, and Argentina is racing to avoid what would be the ninth default in its history. On today's episode of the podcast, we'll get into what that would mean for the economy and for politics at a time when President Alberto Fernandez is also, of course, dealing with a pandemic as well as a deeply divided political landscape. I am joined by my friend Benjamin Gadan, the deputy director of the Wilson Center's Latin American program and director of its Argentina project. Previously, he served as the South America director on the National Security Council at the White House. Ben, thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for the invitation, Brian. So, Ben, you know, we're both sort of old school Argentina hands, and I want to start with a personal story that tries to sort of, you know, capture this element of like, here we go again, but also show how unpredictable the politics can be around defaults in Argentina and how different things can look inside the country compared to outside. And Ben, as I think you know, I I lived in Buenos Aires as a young reporter um, from 2000 to 2004. It was actually my first job. And that means, of course, that I covered, I guess that was (laughs) default number seven, and in many ways kind of considered the most dramatic of them all because it was this huge economic crisis and a debt default on that was at the time the biggest in the history of the world. And, you know, covering that crisis in 2001, I was 23 years old and it was a grind. When things finally came to a head in December and President De La Rua resigned and then you had the interim guy Rodriguez Sa come in, I was actually, at that point, <laughs> I watched the famous session of Congress where President, then-President Rodriguez saw announced the default in bed, <laughs> believe it or not, because they had actually, they had called in a bunch of other journalists to help us out with the story because at that point, all of us who'd been doing it for like the past several months and years were exhausted. And true to form, I watched that in bed. And of course, Rodriguez saw declares default and Congress rises to its feet and starts chanting, Argentina, Argentina. And that was a moment that was vilified uh, in the international press then and years later is sort of, you know, this apparently callous sign that, you know, here was a country that was willfully defaulting on its debt and kind of a financial outlaw in the eyes of Wall Street and others. But the weird thing, Ben, is that I remember watching that in bed and totally understanding why they were on their feet and cheering and sort of felt this weird upswell of like Argentine patriotism um, at that moment as well. And I guess if I had to explain it, it was, 
you know, they had been standing on the precipice of that default for so long and had the entire world, IMF and others sort of, U.S. Treasury and and others sort of wagging their finger at Argentina saying, you better not default, you better not default. And everybody there knew, they had their eyes open in terms of how disastrous it would be. But when the moment came to finally make that jump, it felt almost cathartic because it was one of the, again, because it had been looming for so long. And I know the politics are different this time around, and, and Ben will try to get into that. But, you know, you think about the sweep on this. And do you ever, amid this whole debate right now about whether Argentina will or will not enter into default, do you find yourself asking, like, how on earth are we here again? Unfortunately, it's predictable as much as it is repetitive, Brian. I think, you know, the problems in Argentina that bring it to, you know, the edge of this default cliff over and over again are pretty basic. I mean, it's this overspending and an uncompetitive economy that doesn't trade enough and, you know, can't generate enough revenue to pay its costs and can't generate enough dollars to pay its its dollar-denominated debt. And so, you know, as dramatic and unique as this moment feels because of the coronavirus, you know, it's worth remembering not only Argentina's repeated history of default, but also that it was confronting this debt crisis before the coronavirus, right? And it was very likely to be in this very same situation, even if we hadn't seen COVID-19. So in that sense, you know, it's odd for a country of its size and sophistication to constantly find itself in a debt crisis. But given that past and given that it never quite learns its lessons, no, I'm not all that surprised with where we are today. I imagine that you, like me, have spent just countless hours in you know, the confiterias, the, the cafes of Buenos Aires, debating the idiosyncrasies of the country and, and, you know, why do the same things keep happening? But what you're you're basically saying is, you know, it's a country that, that has been living beyond its means, I, I guess, for most of the period since its foundation. Right? I mean, there were, of course, the golden years of the Bell Epic, but the fact that there have been so many over time suggests that this is, I don't know if it's something in the country's DNA or has to do with commodity cycles or what the deal is. But, you know, here we, here we are again. Yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of, you know, cottage industries trying to figure out the idiosyncrasies of Argentina, defining Peronism, sorting out why there's such dysfunction. You know, I, I don't think it requires all that study, although it's interesting and it is certainly complex. I think it's, it's what you've referenced. You know, the country has trouble living within it means it you know, has a certain level of consumption and quality of life that it demands, but it doesn't produce the wealth to be able to sustain that. And, you know, repeatedly it finds itself, you know, overspending and facing debts that it can't sustain. I mean, one thing that that does burden Argentina that perhaps doesn't burden other countries is the record of Argentina's past performance, which is to say, if you look at the last government in Argentina that was doing what most, you know, mainstream economists in the West thought were the correct steps, you know, why did it fail? Well, we can get into a lot of reasons, but one of them was the burden of this history, which is there's so much mistrust right now of Argentina that at the drop of a hat, you have a stampede of investors leaving Argentina, which makes it much more vulnerable to these kinds of debt crises than other countries. So even when it's behaving reasonably responsibly, it's still at greater risk than some other emerging markets. But that was so soon after, you know, it seemed to be it's like history had been erased or people had willfully forgotten. I mean, there was even a hundred year bond, which I... (laughs) 
to, to be clear, Argentina sold a, a bond in the market recently. It was under Macri. I remember thinking at the time, like, really? <laughs> it, it's true. I agree. It, it's an interesting thing. I mean, when there's an opportunity and the interest rates are high enough and there's always a sense that maybe Argentina is going to turn the corner, you're correct. It seems like that history to some degree is cast aside, um, but it comes right back as soon as there's any lack of confidence in what's happening, whether in policy or whether it's related to a currency crisis in Turkey or whether it's you know an interest rate hike in the United States. You know, Argentina is always vulnerable to, you know, capital flight, to these so-called sudden stops in financing, which is just a fancy way of saying that investors decide almost overnight that Argentina is a bad bet. And the consequences are dramatic. Yeah, it is true that, that analyzing Argentina's sort of repeated sins over time is a cottage industry. I've always thought, though, that, you know, there should be, if not equal, more study of of the creditors, right? I mean, if there have been eight defaults, how we keep finding ourselves back in this situation. But maybe, maybe that's a different, a different topic for a different time. Let's let's talk about what we're facing right now. As I said, the clock is running out. Uh, Argentina trying to reach a deal with creditors. There's about sixty-five billion dollars in foreign law, foreign currency debt out there, and if it doesn't pay a five hundred million dollar interest payment due on May twenty-two, then that officially constitutes default. I want to go back, though, and talk about the politics of this for a moment before we get into the economics of, of what it means. You know, back to this story that I told in the opening about how, uh, you know, default back in 2001 was kind of greeted, at least by some, in almost a patriotic way. What's your sense of how the politics around this are playing out this time? It's been interesting to watch the public opinion polling in Argentina on the prospect of default. Argentines are being asked that question. And actually, most Argentines now don't favor default, and they favor a negotiated settlement. I think there's a couple factors that explain that. One is, you know, the last time around, the government really had spent a lot of time vilifying Argentina's creditors. You know, that even intensified later with this, you know, prolonged, decade-long dispute with these so-called holdout bondholders after the 2001 default. Um, but but even before, as you pointed out, there was all that nationalism, not only because, you know, a sense, you know, as you told from your time there, that this was inevitable and it had to happen, but also a sense of victimhood in Argentina, that somehow Argentina is, is mistreated by international financial actors, um, including, frankly, the International Monetary Fund. And, and the solutions never work, but they impose great suffering through austerity, through vicious budget cuts. And, you know, the Argentine left in particular and Peronism, when not borrowing excessively, portrays this sort of rapacious capitalist Wall Street world that takes advantage of Argentina or portrays it, you know, in real moral terms. You know, the, the investors come in, they get paid high interest rates to bear a risk, and then they don't accept that, you know, sometimes the risk doesn't work out. I think right now, Argentines don't seem to be eager for another long period where they're locked out of capital markets. Why that is, I've given one potential explanation, that the government hasn't invested the political capital in that fight and in vilifying the bondholders, and maybe it's more difficult to do when they're not these so-called vulture funds. Maybe it's because the government itself knows that it you know, doesn't want to be locked out, that the external environment, even before the pandemic, was not favorable, neither politically in the region, neither globally in terms of commodity prices. Well, there's, there's, there's no commodities boom this time. 
No, <laughs> no. there's no commodities boom. <laughs> you know, they would get the benefit that Nestor had of not paying their debts, and that frees up some money. But you know, they wouldn't have Venezuela to be able to provide loans. They they don't have more money coming from the IMF. They've already devalued so much. You know, they really don't have a lot of elements. So I think the government doesn't want to end up isolated and and in default again. So for a lot of reasons, I don't think you're going to see that surge in nationalism and anti-creditor sentiment. Now that could change in a prolonged dispute, depending how ugly it gets. But for a variety of reasons, I don't think Argentines right now are cheering for default. It's interesting, though, that as you point out, President Alberto Fernandez, he's not really pushing that sort of hard line of, of, I guess you could say, vilifying the creditors. And, you know, he has tried to stake out more moderate ground than his Vice President Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner why? I mean, do you think it is just that, you know, wariness, recognizing that the world is different now than it was 15 years ago last time they went through this? Or do you think there's something else maybe more linked to either his personality or the changes in Argentine politics that have occurred since then? Yeah, I think you may explain it by his general you know, demeanor and style he's reputed to be and appears to be a much more pragmatic actor, less driven by ideology than Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner. It's possible. I think it comes down to the fact that for a successful term in office and the potential for reelection, he needs funds. I mean, this is, after all, a populist and a populist party that thrives on you know income redistribution, but also expanding the state and expanding spending on its constituencies. He assumes office with a debt crisis with, you know, a budget deficit that had been reduced, but is now because of the coronavirus, you know, exploding again, unable to borrow even from, you know, multilateral development banks. This is not a table set for a successful presidency, particularly for a government that depends on, you know, a large state. So I think when he looks at the potential for default, he looks at four years with no resources. Now, it's also true that the government is trying to, you know, drive a pretty hard deal, right? Um, In April, the economy minister, Martin Guzman, made what was initially presented as kind of a take-it-or-leave-it proposal that investors rejected and included a three-year moratorium on foreign debt payments and about 60% in losses on those bonds. On I think that's on a net present value basis. To repeat some of the jargon that I, <laughs> I was forced to learn 20 years ago, how much of Christina Kirchner do you see in this plan, and, and what does that tell you sort of that initial offer and where we've been since tell you about like where power resides in this country. What do the kind of the theatrics around this negotiation tell you about that? It's an important question. It's it's still a bit of a black box in terms of the influence that Cristina has over Alberto Fernandez. I actually don't see her fingerprints yet on Argentina's approach to this. I think this, you know, finance minister, Martin Guzman, who was, you know, a protege of Joseph Stiglitz uh, in New York, came from Columbia University, you know, isn't a Cristinista figure. He's someone who's come in with his own worldview and his own ideology, um, who thinks he can, you know, make Argentina a case study in a different kind of approach to sovereign debt restructuring. Uh, the fact that it was a take-it-or-leave-it offer, yeah, it does strike you as a little Christina-like in terms of, you know, an aggressive posture. But I think, you know, he's been more open to a conversation with creditors. Where Christina really thrives is in the kind of chaos that would follow a default. 
an Argentina that's isolated again, that's litigating against its creditors. It's us against the world. We are an abused victim of an international financial system that chronically mistreats us. You know, the IMF is also a villain imposing austerity and impoverishing Argentina. And that's kind of the environment and the milieu that Christina really thrives in. You know, her social movements are in the streets again. You know, that scenario, which I think is is not favorable, frankly, to any of these actors, neither the, the government of Alberto Fernandez neither to Peronists, neither to creditors. You know, that's the scenario where Christina really asserts herself. I think right now, the Alberto Fernandez is running the show. Just, just to interrupt you there. Ben, do you think we're going to get there? Do you think Argentina is going to default this time? Unfortunately, yes. It's hard to see Argentina right now you know, finding a solution, at least in the very short term. Now, it's also not an optimal scenario for creditors. And I think, you know, creditors have most of the leverage here. They certainly can sustain, you know, a period of non-payment from Argentina in order to get a, a much better deal. But it's not what creditors are looking for either. So I think there is a possibility that Alberto Fernandez is a more pragmatic figure, finds a way to reach an agreement with these creditors. But yeah, I think, unfortunately, the base case scenario is pretty grim. It's default. It's potentially a prolonged default. It's this continued printing of pesos to you know sustain Argentine overspending, which could end up in very high inflation or even hyperinflation. There's some really dark potential outcomes that Argentina could see. And we're not even talking about the public health crisis. So let's talk about that, because it's, it's part of the landscape that, you know, kind of impacts all of this. Uh, early on in the pandemic, Alberto Fernandez, you know, he really did act decisively to try to stop the virus's spread. Um, his measures have been pretty popular, at least so far. One poll uh, from the Argentine firm Management and Fit uh, found that 83 percent of the population approved of his response to the outbreak. Uh, there was also something of a detente with the opposition. Uh, there was even kind of a sense that politics could be set aside for the time being in the country that made the word la grieta famous, right? La grieta meaning the, the sort of famous political gap between not only the two political factions competing for power in Argentina, but also much of society. Has that kind of kumbaya thing lasted the public support for Fernandez has lasted. You're absolutely right. I mean, he, he was elected with you know less than a majority of the vote just in late 2019. Here he is with through-the-roof approval ratings, despite imposing really economically costly public health measures. And, you know, the reason is, I think Argentines are being quite mature politically here and recognizing the need for these measures. Argentina's, you know, confirmed cases are about 8,300. Deaths are fewer than 400. You know, just compare it to neighboring Brazil and you see, you know, obviously the scale of the populations are different, but I think you really do see the positive results. Now, just an asterisk on that, Argentina has some real structural risks when it comes to the public health piece of this. You're seeing a lot of spread in Visha uh, 31, this uh, shanty town in, in the city of Buenos Aires and in surrounding areas um, where it's very hard to impose social distancing. And so you may find that despite these measures, quite responsible, quite conscientious, quite popular, you know, may not be able to keep the, the death toll and the number of cases as low as it's been. But no, I think politically it has been helpful. Um, you're correct. The, you know, the mayor of the city of Buenos Aires, who's from the opposition party, has you know, worked closely with the president, the governor of the province of Buenos Aires, who is very close to Christina Kirchner's wing of Peronism, has you know, worked very closely with the president. That's all true. Um, despite all that, I don't think the president emerges in the medium term strengthened by this, unfortunately. And that's because of the economic costs that will be imposed on Argentina. Yeah, I keep repeating with regards to politics, not just in Argentina, but everywhere in Latin America. 
what's popular today may not be popular tomorrow, right? I mean, all this support for social distancing that was pretty unanimous at the beginning of the crisis uh, just naturally tends to erode over time because the rally around the flag effect fades and also because social distancing is really, really hard. It's hard economically, it's hard psychologically, and so on. But even even accounting for that, it is, you know, you know, given that I spend most of my days uh, these days following Brazil rather than Argentina, which, of course, my Argentine friends have never forgiven me for, um, you know, things in Argentina look look pretty harmonious so far by comparison. No, they absolutely do. I mean, look, in Brazil, you're seeing two health ministers, you know, resign or be fired. You're seeing a president who still hasn't come around to the seriousness of the public health consequences. What you are seeing, though, in Brazil, and you know better than I do, Brian, though, is a central bank and a finance ministry that have reacted in a really robust way with greater resources and, you know, greater speed. In Argentina, the reason I think in the medium term and long term this harms Alberto Fernandez is I think, frankly, it harms everyone, which is even if he emerges as a hero in his approach to the public health piece of this, he simply will be deprived of resources necessary to restart the economy. And, you know, as we've talked about repeatedly, Argentina, like much of Latin America, but but amplified, came into this, you know, with three years consecutive of recession with no foreign exchange reserves to speak of, with a depreciated currency, with a debt crisis. So it really was ill-equipped to provide the kind of stimulus needed to, you know, preserve jobs, avoid mass bankruptcies, provide, you know, desperately needed, you know, social services. So it's going to come out even less equipped to answer the demands of the public. And so for that reason, I think, Brian, even if you know, the Argentines come out and say, we're, we're satisfied even, you know, with the, the emotional and economic toll of the public health response. But now we want to see government improve our lives and government is going to turn to the Argentine public and say, well, we really have empty cupboards and very little capacity to do so. You get this sense right now for all of us as we as we look around Latin America and the world of kind of staring into the abyss when it comes to talking about the economies and, you know, how much I mean, forget things like GDP. Let's think about unemployment and poverty rates and so on. With Argentina, you know, it's it's tough for me sometimes. I guess you're always influenced by your first experience. And I, I certainly have spent the last 20 years seeing the country through the lens of that, um, you know, very real national trauma that, that the country lived through back in 2001 and 02. Is there a reason to believe that this crisis could be even worse from an economic perspective than that one? There are reasons to think that. There was a recent report from J.P. Morgan that suggested it might be worse, and it looked a little farther back than the pandemic, which is to say there was this massive drought in 2018. There was this massive capital flight that occurred when it was clear that Mauricio Macri and his pro-market government was going to lose. Now you have the pandemic and you have this debt crisis that is persisting and may not have a clean resolution. And if you look at the cumulative effect of all of that, plus the assumption of a slow recovery in commodity prices and demand from China, and yes, there is this possibility that this ends up even worse. Um, again, as we talked about earlier, Nestor Kirchner, who's, you know, to some degree, and if you're notwithstanding the corruption allegations, you know, a bit of a bipartisan hero in terms of his performance. I think he was the only recent Argentine president to leave office with over 50% approval rating, which may not sound like much, but in Argentina, they, they tend to sour on leaders relatively quickly. And how did he do it? Again, it was a lot of positive external factors that simply aren't present. And so you have a real national economic trauma and you don't have, you know, the wind behind your sails that that Nestor Kirchner had. I think for that reason, you see some projections that say could be as horrible as it is to say, even worse 
than that period. But let me just say one more thing, Brian, which is that, you know, Argentina isn't simply a, you know, a victim or a beneficiary of its circumstances, right? It has some agency as well. It, it certainly didn't create the coronavirus and its responses, as we've talked about, have been relatively successful and responsible. But if it's to grow, it needs to make structural changes that it simply either cannot or refuses to make. And so when you look at why Argentina's prospects are not all that favorable, you know, part of that is it's one of the most closed economies in the world, like Brazil. It is still supporting uncompetitive industries. It's still sucking resources, you know, from agriculture instead of allowing agriculture to expand. It has a rigid labor code. It has, you know, an expensive pension system. It hasn't done the reforms that even Brazil did recently. So there are things that are in Argentina's hands. And one thing that I think is we give Argentina a little bit too much credit for its successes and a little, you know, too much blame for its failures when they're externally imposed. And I think we need to remind ourselves that, you know, some of this is policy failure. Oh, there's no question. And look, I mean, I back to this idea of the the two a.m. conversations in the confiterias. I mean, I <laughs> you and I have never done that together, but I, I feel like we're back there again in in some ways. You know, kind of debating what the country would have to do in order to to fix its problems. You mentioned you know some things, but ultimately to break out of this cycle, so that maybe maybe that count of default stays at eight or or nine, I guess, depending on what happens this week. You see those those measures you mentioned as as the best the best way to ensure that that maybe when when two Argentina hands are having this conversation in the year twenty sixty four, they're sort of laughing about the way things used to be. Look, I just think that structural change and this kind of economic transformation is possible, right? You can create new industries. You can open to trade in places that had been closed to trade. You can improve competitiveness. You can invest in education and infrastructure. Now, some of that requires money and money Argentina you know, is in short supply right now. I acknowledge in the short term this is difficult, but other things are policy decisions, right? Argentina's responses right now in many ways are setting Argentina back, right? What is Argentina doing? Increasing taxes on its most competitive sectors. That's its agriculture sector. It's redistributing income instead of, you know, expanding the pie. Um, it is increasing taxes. Now, again, these are emergency measures, but in the long term, these things worsen the investment climate. You have capital controls again. If you default again, you won't see investment in the Baca Muerta oil and gas sector. So you just name it and across the board, even before the pandemic, lots of the policy responses were reducing competitiveness for Argentina. Now, if you have other ideas, then fine. I mean, I know what I'm listing are pretty con- you know, orthodox recommendations that you would hear from what used to be called the Washington Consensus or these so-called neoliberal ideas that have been really discredited in the Argentine psyche. Fine, come up with other ideas, but you need a path to growth. Well, Ben, we'll see. To be continued, I'm sure. And uh, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. And uh, let's uh, share some media lunas in the future and happier times in Buenos Aires. Thanks for listening to the America's Quarterly podcast. You can read more about Argentine politics at americasquarterly.org. Finally, if you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a review Give us a rating and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The America's Quarterly podcast is produced by Brendan O'Boyle and Katie Hopkins. America's Quarterly is an independent, not-for-profit publication of America's Society and the Council of the Americas.